Humans have qualities no other animals have. We build huts for ourselves that are 2,000 feet tall, and we make stadiums where 80,000 regular people can sit together and watch really brave people play with balls. Humans made up algebra and Harry Potter. We have fridges and dishwashers and nuclear reactors. All that's for sure true, and it's awesome, and in no way is what I'm about to say next meant to slam humans here. After all, the shape of the world is all about people, cities, and nature, and how we all mix and match and sort it out. But there is no hierarchy here on Earth where humans sit apart and above every other form of life and where everything else exists solely so it can have the honor of being eaten by us. The belief that humans are categorically or essentially different from all other animals is called human exceptionalism. This season, we have a mini-series of shows, four of them actually, that tell stories of ways that we are the same and different from other animals, and that discredit the idea of human exceptionalism. Any remnants of it that our culture may retain should be way over by now. Human exceptionalism should be considered as obsolete as phrases like, roll up the window, or where's my camera? The world has changed. We have changed. Welcome to The Shape of the World. I'm Jill Riddell. My name is Joana Goyes Vallejos, and I'm a behavioral ecologist in the herpetology division at the University of Kansas. So I'm originally from Colombia, and we have a lot of frogs. It's one of the most diverse countries in terms of amphibian diversities. Colombia is one of the most diverse countries in the world. Did you grow up in a rural area or were you in a city? Were you living in some area where there were frogs? Never, no. I grew up in the mountains, about 9,000 feet above sea level in the southwest of Colombia in a very small city called San Juan de Pasto. So it's not like I grew up chasing frogs. And I find it interesting that sometimes People say, oh, you must have grown chasing frogs and salamanders, and I did not. But I did like to read a lot, and I read a lot about biology. I read a lot about animals in general. So Johanna is relatively new in her career as a herpetologist, a field that, like a lot of scientific disciplines, has had mostly men in it. She's been looking at sex roles in frogs. Our culture loves talking about sex. And frankly, if other animals had talk shows and movies, the internet, they'd spend a lot of time talking about sex too. Because sex is literally about survival. It's how our genes keep perpetuating themselves by making us want sex, like sex, have sex. If other species of animals had TV shows, they'd also have a lot to say about sex and how males and females in their species behave and how easy or hard it is within their species to switch things up, have a male occupy a typically female role or a female to occupy a male role. Johanna has been studying an interesting frog on the island of Borneo that does just that. It flips the usual frog gender paradigm. I'm interested in the strategies that frogs use to attract mates and 
after the fact, I'm interested in what strategies frogs use to take care of their offspring. In most species of animals, both females and males compete for mates, but the predominant pattern among animals, by quite a wide margin, is that males are forced to compete much more ferociously for mates than females do for males. In many types of organisms, the males literally fight one another to get access to females. They sport some loud, sexy colored outfit, make gorgeous music to attract the ladies, grow scary weapons to scare off other guys. Think about flashy feathers of a bird or the horns on sheep or the antlers on deer. These are characteristics that are particular of males because they are used in male-male combat or they are used for flashy displays to attract the females. Basic biology behind this is males have lots and lots of gametes. That's reproductive cells. While females have not so many. One egg compared with one sperm? The egg, because of its relative scarcity, is much more valuable. A male can easily squander a few million sperm and barely miss them. But that's not true for eggs. The female possesses a finite number, and her eggs can be fertilized only at certain periods of time. So, for a female to successfully reproduce and have offspring that survive so they can also reproduce, continuing the genetic line, which is, after all, the point of all this, it pays for the female to be intelligent about selection of mates. This all sounds so sexist, I know, because it's impossible not to think about humans, right? It pays for males to be aggressive while women sit back and are calm-minded and judicious. But stay with me here, because Johanna has found a species that turns that supposition on its head. In a type of animal, frogs, where the basic biology seems like reversing roles should be completely impossible. Males are the most vocal sex. They use this calling behavior for mate attraction, and they also use this calling behavior for territorial display or a way to compete with other males for access to the females. So they make those noises to let the other males know, I'm here and you better stay out of my way. Exactly. In the majority of frog species, females don't produce any vocalizations. They not only don't have the muscles for the sound production, but also in general, whenever there's a few species that have been reported to have this female calling behavior, it's only used for localization purposes. Looks like maybe the male and the female are too far apart and they are trying to find each other with kind of a Marco Polo situation where the male produces a call and the female responds and he can home in or she can home in where the mate is. And for frogs, normally neither the male nor the female provides any type of protection for the eggs. There's no teaching the little tadpoles how to swim or anything. So neither parent is in any way mothering the young. Yes, 90% of the species of frogs don't have parental care. They lay the eggs and they Hope for the best. So set the stage for us. Tell us about these forests in Borneo where the frogs live. I did my field work in a tiny country that is found on the island of Borneo in Southeast Asia. And it's called Brunei Darussalam. 
Brunei is located on the west coast of Borneo. And we had to take a speedboat and we have to go upstream all the way to the heart where the tropical forest is found. And this is the most pristine tropical forest that I ever seen in my life. You can see how the trees become bigger and bigger and you start seeing hornbills, which I had never seen before. This is the equivalent of a toucan, but in the rainforest and it's way bigger and way cooler. You see things flying and just the light shining through the trees, tallest trees in the world. And then eventually you reach the fuel station. <laughs> I don't know if you remember this scene of in Jurassic Park when, when the, the doors of the park open and the, the jeeps go inside. That's how I felt, that the same feeling of wonder of just finally arriving to the fuel station and, and just knowing that so many things were ahead of me. That field station became my home for over 12 months, and I miss being woken up by gibbons. The, so the gibbons are a type of primate, right? So they make kind of monkey-like sounds, or what do they sound like? Can you imitate them? Yeah. Um, <laughs> the sound is it's very soft. It's not like the general monkey sound that sometimes people make in movies. It's, it's more like, So that's a nice segue. So the gibbons are monogamous and they pair up to and their families are up in those trees way up above your head. And meanwhile, you're interested in trying to find pairs of frogs. Did you already know when you were going there that the thing you were interested in about the frogs was this possible sex role reversal? Or was that a discovery while you were there? I discovered this while I was there. So I knew that for the guardian frog, I knew that they exhibited a little bit of parental care. They, there were a couple of papers in 1986 and 1988 that described that the males guarded the eggs, they stayed with the eggs, and that the males had been seen transporting tadpoles on their backs. Interesting. So they saw that the males were hanging around the eggs, or did they even know they were the males? Did they think they might be the females? I don't know if they knew if they were the males. I think they assumed so, but I actually don't know. And that was something I wanted to figure out, because there are cases in the frog world, if you will, where the males are the ones doing all the parental care behavior, but there are also other cases where the females are the ones that do these parental care behaviors. So one of my objectives was to figure out which sex was a caregiver. And basically with that little piece of information in hand, that's what drove me to go to the other side of the world. That is so amazing. I just love that. Before you continue, I heard you say guardian frogs. Is that the name of the frog written up in that 1986 paper and that you traveled all that way hoping to study? The scientific name is Limnonectes palavanensis. People call it the guardian frog of Borneo. It's a small nocturnal leaf litter frog. So that means that they are found among or on top of the dead leaves that you find on the forest floor. 
and think about the very first segment of your thumb. If you lift your thumb and you look at the first segment of your thumb, that's about the size of the frog. So they are not very big, but they are not very small either. They have a brownish pattern. They are very cryptic, meaning that they can camouflage very well among the leaves. They have big eyes, golden eyes, that I find very cute. <laughs> Do the females have the same coloring? Yes, females and males are basically identical in coloration. The only way that you can differentiate a female from a male is by their size. Females are slightly bigger. And if you get to hear them, then you can tell them apart because the males have a very particular call and the females have a very particular call as well. What was it about that that was so fascinating to you? I was very fascinated not only by the tropical rainforest over there, but also the diversity of frogs that they have in Southeast Asia. And during this conference, I met a professor that has been based in Brunei for a few years now. And we started tossing ideas back and forth about what could I do for my dissertation research. And because he knew that I was interested in parental care behavior and mating behavior in frogs, I wanted to study a species of frog that hadn't been overstudied. I kind of wanted something new. I wanted the full experience culturally, academically, intellectually. What could be more different from, you know, living in Latin America or living in the U.S. than going to the other side of the world where there's a different culture and a different religion, a different forest, a different fauna altogether. Initially, during my first pilot study, we couldn't find the males. They don't call very often, and it was very hard to find males vocalizing at night. But when we did find one, I remember vividly that a couple of feet away, I heard this chirping sound. And I was sitting right there, and I had the male in front of me, so I knew it wasn't him, the one producing the sound. And I... I remember, I think I have a recording of that because I was recording a male and I can hear myself saying, it's a female, that's a female, that must be the female calling. That must have been thrilling to hear and to have the realization that it was a female, that idea to have that click into place. The possibility that these frogs exhibit sexual reversal, finding that was probably one of the most satisfying things that has happened in my career so far. How did you even begin? I assume because they sing, you probably follow their voices. Is that what you did? Or can you talk a little bit about what it was like to go out into that forest, which even though you're a brave person and have a lot of experience in the field, it must be a little bit intimidating to head out into unfamiliar woods in the middle of the night to look for frogs. It is. Initially, the first few days of field work, I was accompanied by my collaborator, Dr. Grafe which was great help. And yes, we were looking, or rather we were hearing if the frogs were making any calls. And whenever you hear them, you just make a beeline and go find them. It actually proved very difficult to find them because they don't call often. Whenever we found one, we would have to go off trail, go through the bushes and try to find it and just walk a little bit, get quiet, wait for it to call again. 
move a little further, get quiet, wait for it to call again until we can find it. You start to understand why some scientists choose to collect their specimens and bring them into a, a glass aquarium in an office somewhere and study them where they don't have to be walking out through the woods. Oh, definitely. I mean, I always wonder why they were only two small articles that describe this parental care behavior. And I thought, why nobody has studied these species? And then I went there and realized how hard they were to work with. So I understood that that was the reason. <laughs> <laughs> what are the ways biologists describe sex role reversal? What qualifies for that description? There are certain conditions that have to be met. The males invest so much in their offspring that it's actually preventing them from acquiring additional females. And this is seen in species like the seahorses, where the male becomes virtually pregnant. And even if he wanted, he couldn't mate with other females. In addition to the high male parental investment, there has to be some kind of characteristic that in general, you would only see in males. Females, usually in frogs, are silent, or in birds, they are gray. In sexual reverse species, there should be some kind of trait that is used by the females to attract males. That's why finding that these females vocalize was so important. What I found that it was the most striking thing is that they do these vocalizations spontaneously. They produce them without a male present or in absence of the males, without any kind of previous stimulus. They don't need for the males to be calling for these vocalizations to be produced. So it was their voices that were the stand-in for the antlers or the glossy plumage. Exactly. That was the key characteristic that they call spontaneously. So essentially the females are in the role of the pursuers. Exactly. And later on, when I calculated how much a male calls versus how much a female calls, I found that females call way more than the males do. The males call very little, whilst the females call a lot, three times, four times per minute sometimes. And that was key. Do you think that your being a female scientist had anything to do with your being more willing to assume that a female might make vocalizations? Is it possible that scientists until now simply hadn't been looking for this type of sex role reversal in nature? Or they heard it, but they explained it away in some other way? There are several reasons why I think maybe nobody heard this before. And one of them is the fact that in general, people think or herpetologists think that only the males are the ones vocalizing. And to be fair, that's true a whole huge percentage of the time. Yeah, for most frogs, that is the case. But another reason could be that in general, males lose their capacity to hear certain frequencies sounds with age. Oh, you mean male humans? Male humans, yes. So you know how people say that females are more tuned to hear the cries of babies? We have evolved to hear high, higher frequency sounds than human males do. And I have seen these in my classrooms. You know, I have tested 17, 18 year old men and 17 year old women, and we have done hearing tests 
And definitely females have a better hearing in the high frequency spectrum. I never knew that before. Yes. Uh, I mean, it's true. And sometimes I wonder because herpetology as a field has been male dominated for many years. Things are changing and we have amazing female herpetologists nowadays. But 35 years ago, that wasn't really the case. And the people that went to the field were men. And maybe, and they were men that were probably over 40. Perhaps they just couldn't listen for the female vocalizations. Well, it also is another argument, too, just for having a wide diversity of kinds of people doing science who have different physical abilities and, and different talents. Did you have any women ahead of you on this path? Any scientists who were role models? I had the opportunity to go to the Smithsonian Tropical Research Institute in Panama. And I had a wonderful mentor there, a fellow Colombian researcher. Her name is Jimena Bernal. Dr. Bernal was just such an amazing mentor, and she introduced me to the world of frogs. And I remember being in this kind of marshy area where there were so many frogs. There was this cacophony of sounds, frogs calling from the leaves, jumping in the puddles in the middle of the marsh, so many different frogs. And I remember Dr. Bernal saying, this is so-and-so species, and this is this species, and this is that species. And I just couldn't help but think, how does she know all these? How does she know all these species? How can I get there? And just working with her, and being in that amazing environment made me fell in love with frogs. Frogs are just so misunderstood sometimes. They are beautiful. They will never bite you. A frog will never bite, as opposed to other creatures. And you can just observe them, and they make sounds, and they communicate, and they have these amazing behaviors. They're an amazing study organism, and all these characteristics and this diversity in the world just made me fall in love with them. Do you think it made any difference that the scientist that inspired you about frogs was also a woman? I think it did. To this day, she is the person I want to be when I grow up. <laughs> Are there lessons to be drawn from your research about frogs that apply to humans and other animals when it comes to gender roles? Finding systems that behave differently from what we think conventional is, it challenges our understanding of the natural systems. When we find species that don't behave like we would expect them to behave, I think we start considering other alternatives. And this has been happening in science for a long time. People that studied birds thought that they were monogamous. And then they started finding that females actually made with several males, and some scientists refused to report that because it didn't seem natural. And I think nowadays, just finding more and more examples of this big spectrum of behaviors, it should be a way to have an open mind of the diversity that we can find, not only among different systems or among different species, but also within species within our own species.
This is Jill Riddell, and I hope this conversation with Joanna Goyes Vallejos helps you to see frogs and gender roles a little bit differently. Next week, we'll talk with neurobiologist Peggy Mason, who has discovered that rats experience empathy and take action to help other rats who find themselves in a pickle. Basically, what we knew was that one rat could catch the emotion of another rat. That's an internal experience. What can they do with it? Until then, try to get outside one evening this week and listen to the songs of the frogs. The Shape of the World is about nature and people and the world we share. It's a production of the Office of Modern Composition, a business that creates compositions and fosters composers. If you have a story to tell, the Office of Modern Composition can help. They can go all DIY and teach you how to write and produce the story yourself, or they'll do the whole thing for you. Either way, you can end up with a permanent archival piece that presents your ideas and experiences. The Shape of the World is produced in the vital, vigorous, and beautiful metropolis of Chicago in the prairie state of Illinois. You can find The Shape of the World on Instagram and on the website, shapeoftheworldshow.com. Shape of the World's producer is Ari Mejia. The theme music is composed and performed by Brad Wood. Thank you to today's guest, Joanna Goyes Vallejos and the University of Kansas.